Hello, and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast, hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with C-level company executives and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Wu Jin Ho, analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and with me today is Arista Network's Chief Operating Officer, Ashul Sadana. Ashul, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Wujin. Thanks for having me. Now, very quickly on Arista before we kick things off, Arista is one of the few companies that has made networking sexy over the past several years. Since its IPO in 2014, the company has brought a lot of innovation in low latency switching and routing gear, which resulted in strong traction with leading hyperscale cloud providers such as Microsoft and Meta, which is a customer base better known for their use of generic white box gear. Now, from 2014 to 2021, sales have grown at a 26% rate. And we think it's on pace for a 40% growth year in 2022 to over $4 billion in sales based on our analysis. And we think it can deliver $5 billion in sales by 2024, which would be a year ahead of its targets. Again, this is based on our analysis. So, Anshul, I served it up and I'd like to start our discussion with what I like to call the elevator pitch. Can you share your elevator pitch with the audience? And why should they care about Arista? Absolutely. Arista is a cloud networking company. We cater to the most demanding workloads in the cloud, in the service provider space, and in large enterprises. We have focused on client-to-cloud connectivity because all the networking models have been shifting. You're no longer building these siloed networks, but a large scalable infrastructure that is repeatable, highly automated, and very, very high quality. Because in today's world, the network cannot go down. That's what Arista provides to more than 8,000 customers in the world today. We have over 20% market share in high-speed networking, as well as growing in campus networking now. Oh, great. So as I highlighted in, in the prelude, the company is growing at a 40% pace in 2022. Yourself and the rest of the management team has mapped out a $5 billion sales trajectory in 2020, by 2025. Could you just talk about the primary driver? You talked about campus switching, but 2022 seems like it's more of a cloud year. Before you look at 2022, you go back and look at a few previous years. And we've done very well in the cloud since the beginning, since 2010, 2012 timeframe. And these hyperscalers, we call them the cloud titans, do build very large infrastructure. So we're doing well with them. They're in a massive upgrade cycle or an expansion cycle right now. This market is somewhat cyclical, which is okay. But over time, as you noted, the company has grown very well over the last eight, nine years, and the cloud has grown significantly as well for us. We've guided for Q3. We haven't given explicit guidance for Q4, but the, the growth trajectory for the company has certainly been better than expected this year. We originally thought we'll grow 30%. Now we're growing 40% year to date. The cloud companies love partnering with the best technology companies where they can learn from us, they can collaborate with us, and they can build massive infrastructure that helps their business. Our largest enterprise customers also like to use our technology because they can leverage the same building blocks and build a large private cloud and get them the same leverage as well. So we're doing well both in the cloud segments as well as financials and enterprise overall. So you mentioned your largest cloud partners, right? From your, your financial statements state, it's Microsoft and, and Meta. 
And and you said it's a collaborative process, but you know, from from what most investors know of, about the cloud, they love to use white boxes. And I'm curious, what has differentiated Arista from white boxes, which tends to be a, a cheaper box, let's just say, right? And 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 why do they keep coming back to you, where you know both Microsoft and and, and Meta are 10% customers? Well, you know, that's a great question because I'd say since the start of the company and since our IPO, there's this been misconception that white boxes will take over the world. And before we talk about what Microsoft and Meta are doing with Arista, it's important to understand why do cloud companies look at white boxes in the first place? And people think it's because of cost, but turns out cost is actually not their primary focus. They would like to get lower cost as well, but they look for control, they look for flexibility, they look for their secret sauce that gives them a competitive edge. And in the past, before Arista existed, you didn't have a choice because you could buy a standard product that everyone buys or build on your own and customize and make it appealing to your own internal audience. However, what if there was this company out there that can build the product you want, allow you to customize it without needing a large R&D force because we will do it for them. Mm -hmm. And over time, we have shifted this model from a build versus buy analysis, which is generally based on price to a build and buy model. These are companies that build some parts of technology stack on their own and they buy the rest on from the market as well. But when they collaborate with Arista, we have shown them how to improve their stack, how to improve the performance of the network, how to lower power, how to improve reliability. And they get time to market advantages by collaborating with us. We are always spot on. Every two or three years, there's the next gen coming from Arista with very, very high quality. So these cloud companies have recognized that and realized that in today's world, because Arista exists, they no longer need to build everything on their own. They can just rely on us as a partner, almost as an extension of their own engineering team and build through us and with us. Here's where I'm a, I'm a little confused when I think about Microsoft and Meta. Microsoft has Sonic as, as their operating system. Meta has FBOS as, as their operating system. So if, if I think about those operating systems, essentially what you're telling me that there are limitations and you're enhancing what they're doing to add a lot more productivity and a lot more functionality to the network on top of those operations. Is that the right way of thinking of it? Or is there a different way? Or how should investors be thinking about that relationship? And, and can that be extended to other clouds and to the enterprise. So why does a company like Microsoft do Sonic? Do they just do it as, as a hobby? You know, let's just go out and build our own OS for fun and invest hundreds of engineers. They actually don't do it for those reasons, right? The reason they won't want to do it is because they want to standardize operations across all their racks, use the exact same OS stack everywhere, get the exact same behavior everywhere, independent of what's underneath. Now, Microsoft has been our largest customer. They've been stated as a greater than 10% customer for many, many years in a row. So it turns out they, when they do use Sonic, they use it on a lot of Arista switches. We actually help port Sonic. They use a lot of Arista drivers within their Sonic stack. We test the product for them. We help them operationalize. Again, they actually think of us as an extension of Microsoft engineering, Azure engineering, to build this stack for them to automate and get them the reliability and the time to market as well. When you look at someone like Facebook, that builds their own hardware and also has FPOS. They also have a different goal, which is to be multi-vendor or dual vendor. But in that scenario, one of the vendors 
happens to be inside the company, which is their own hardware and software team. The other vendor happens to be outside. So they get this two by two matrix where they run FPOS on Arista hardware, or they run FPOS on their own hardware like Minipack, or they run EOS on Arista hardware or EOS on Minipack. And as a result of that, they de-risk what is typically known to be a, a, a very acute problem when you're completely single sourced everywhere that risk can show up and issues can show up. And, and if anything, the latest supply chain crisis during the pandemic has shown that this sort of outsourcing or partnerships that they've done with us have been immensely valuable. I want to shift gears a little, a little bit here. Part of your success of the cloud was you were able to crack the code on speed with 100 gig data center port shipments, right? This is where Arista made its mark. And that's where you really started to take market share. And I know that it's somewhat incorrect to analyze Arista from a speeds and feed basis, but this is probably the most simplistic way of looking at it. You know, how were you able to, number one, crack code where you have 20% market share of 100 gig data, data center port shipments versus Cisco's 11% in 2021? And how much legs do you have left in this 100%, 100 gig port cycle here? I think this is a misconception on Wall Street. That 100 gig happened, Arista happened to have a product, no one else had a product, and somehow we got market share. This market is actually a lot more competitive than that. Okay. 100 gig wasn't a surprise. This was known. 100 gig was, has been talked about since 2001. First 100 gig products, which were based on 10 by 10, shipped around 2013. In fact, we were one of the first companies to ship that. And prior to 100 gig, there was 40 gig. We were ahead in 40 gig as well. Prior to 40 gig was 10 gig, and we were ahead in 10 gig as well. In fact, Arista started as a high-density 10 gig switching company. Now, in reality, what happened is we had been partnering with our cloud customers quite a bit. And there was a need to scale up these designs. You know, can you get to a 64-way ECMP spine all at 100 gig? Can you get to 256-way ECMP when you look at the internet fit traffic going back to the servers? Because that's where load balancing and so on requires you to actually spray the traffic even wider than what the physical network appears to be. You needed a network that was very, very resilient because, you know, in the cloud, when was the last time you got an email or a notification saying, dear customer, the cloud will be down from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m.? That doesn't happen. Right, that doesn't happen. Does that mean the cloud does not require downtime and does not require maintenance and upgrades and patches? They do. In fact, the network is far more complex than the average enterprise. So we've created a lot of automation and tooling with our cloud customers to help do that, again, with very, very high reliability. Quite often, our customers tell us that our hardware is far more reliable than the industry average that they've experienced so far. Software is even more reliable than that compared to anyone else in the industry. Got it. So one last piece I do want to add, in, which is the culture in the company of this collaboration with the customer and doing what's right for the customer, which is key part of the Arista values, um, is significant. Right. And all of that combination made these customers look at us and said, hey, Arista is the right platform. Let's bet big on this and keep on investing in that space. If you go back in that time frame, which is roughly 2016, Mm -hmm. And at announcements from others in, the, in our industry, including our competition, they all had 100 gig products. Got it. Okay. So, so what you're describing to me, as well as to the rest of the audience, is, is this concept of leaf spine switching. And I believe Jay Shree, the CEO of the company, introduced the concept of, splines, of, of the spline 
back then. The, the sense, what you're telling me right now is that I, I know that Arista is a hardware company, right? But at the same time, given all the network automation that's involved in building out this spine switch, there's a lot of software that's involved as well. Is that the right way? I mean, how do we think of you? Do we think of you more as a hardware company or do we think of you as more of a software company now? Well, we are a systems company. We make great hardware and great software. Mm -hmm. Software in networking is complex. There's right. no doubt you need good hardware running at high speeds in a reliable fashion. And, and hardware is getting more and more complex as you get to next gen, where power efficiency is a lot of focus and the complexity of these network designs is very, very complex deep as well. About over 80% of our R&D resources are in fact software engineers. We have over 20 million lines of code mm -hmm. in Arista EOS and our infrastructure around it. The way we build our products, the way we test our products, and maybe it's worthwhile talking a little bit on how testing is done in our industry and in Arista products, I think will help you understand what we do in the software side. But the way the software is architected is very unique as well. And that is what allows customers to customize it mm -hmm. and use it with very high reliability. So let me go deeper into these two topics. First sure. on the architecture, you know, networking has a lot of discrete functions. Yeah. And if you try to compare not a two-page data sheet, but an in-depth comparison of switches and routers around the world, you'll find that you need thousands of these features to make your network work in every use case. And Initially, the cloud used to be simple, but over time, the cloud has grown and has become complex as well. So they need many of these features as well. The way features work in a networking software stack is you have all these different protocols, whether it's SNMP or BGP or OSPF yeah. or Spanning Tree or LACP, they all need to talk to each other in exchange state. And it's all about what is the link status, is the link up, is the link down, which neighbor are you talking to, what protocol does your neighbor speak, and how can you keep the network work reliably and fail over without dropping a packet. So to build that stack, over time, people add a lot of complexity. And there's a lot of if-then-else logic that over 20 years makes the code pretty much unreadable and unmanageable to sustain in terms of bugs and quality and so on. At Arista, what we did is we took the software stack. We have a Linux kernel from day one. We have a database, DB, that got enhanced to NetDB, and that Database stores the entire state of the system, the switch. All the protocols or the applications run in user space around it, but those applications or agents are essentially stateless. So if they crash and restart, you don't really miss anything. Right. The switch will continue to function normally. It's a very clean way to organize networking and scale it. And that is what gives us the architecture and the quality and the performance. Now, the same way, Let's say a cloud company wants to use our switches. These are some realistic use cases where they want to do traffic engineering of how data is being transferred from one of their data centers in the United States over the internet all the way to a user in Asia on a cell phone. Right. These customers write their agents that run inside of our switches, inside EOS, mm -hmm. and they can program our database and our hardware to do traffic engineering, whether it's with MPLS labels or second routing, other techniques. And these customers need maybe two or three engineers to do that customization. They don't need to build the whole router, right? So right. quality and the scalability of the architectures is very, very unique. How do we deliver a high quality product? And that comes down to testing of this infrastructure 
in networking, a typical QA process is that for every developer, you also have one test engineer. Right. And okay. the developers write their functional spec and the test engineers write their test plan. You do a code drop, the test engineers will test the code, they'll file a lot of bugs, you fix the bugs, then you ship the product. And this is not unique to networking. This is generally how software development is done in many industries. At Arista, I mentioned over 80% of our resources are software engineers. There's one unique aspect of about that, which is, you know, we have over 3,500 employees in the company and largely R&D being the, the biggest department. For all the developers we have, the size of our QA team is not measured in people. The size of our QA team today is over 8 megawatts. Okay. And the reason I say that is because all of our testing is automated. We have over 150,000 test cases that run every day on every product, on every combination of software and hardware to find out these corner cases and the types of issues customers run into. That does not mean that we can say our product is bug-free. We have some bugs as well, far fewer than others in the industry. But when a customer does run into a bug or we want to find one internally, we add a test case in the automated suite and that bug will never escape again. It sounds simple on paper, but to execute on this, because there's a lot of noise in automated testing with large set of heuristics and sort of machine learning on the back end, you have to keep on improving on this infrastructure constantly to keep up with the scale and the features that our customers need. And that is where our execution has been off the charts, I would say, in the industry. Got it. So if I recall, I actually visited your offices in your pre-IPO. It was a test environment, that basement office with a, a bunch of machines up and running with cables all over the floor. Is that analogous to, to what you were describing? That, that is correct. You're referring to our Menlo Park office, very, very early days of the company. This yes. 2010 or prior to that, but good memory. And it's similar to that. I can assure you that the cabling is a lot neater now, <laughs> <laughs> but think of it as maybe 20 times, 30 times larger scale than what we had at that point. So investors are right now hyper-focused on the 200, 400 gig cycle. So in essence, what you're telling me is that speeds and feeds, though they matter, it's everything else that's around it, whether it's the software, the interaction between the, the switches and the routing layers, the automation, as well as the tests and, measure, and the test on, on the back end before you deliver the product. That's a differentiator more so than the feeds and speeds. Is, is that the right way of thinking about that? Yeah, I would say we ship all of the new speeds on time with great systems exec execution, and then everything else matters. Shipping on time is important, right? You can't miss the cycle and be super late. At the same time, just having hardware alone will not get you success. You have to deliver a great system, great software, and all of the other functions that come with it. I know we've spoken quite a bit about 100, 200, 400. Maybe at some point later on, we can touch a little bit also on enterprise and campus because we are focused on those parts of the business too. It's not about just 200 and 400, but you are correct when it comes to especially the cloud titans. Their current focus is all about 200 and 400 gig, and, and many are already deploying in volume, as we've said on some of our earnings calls. Right. Before I shift, shift gears to the enterprise data center and the campus, does 200 and 400 gig present itself new types of problems that need to be solved as part of, of a cloud deployment? Yeah, I think what's happening is 
when you look at raw speeds, you know, the industry went from one gig to 10 gig, and it was fairly straightforward. You had to clock the signal 10 times faster on the PCB. If there was a new spec and this new error correction and so on. From a system design standpoint, that was largely it. And over time, those costs have come down significantly. Then we went to 25 gig, which appeared challenging in the initial years, but over time that improved significantly as well. 50 gig series and 50 gig lanes are yeah. a little bit more complex. Signaling gets more complex. In the past, you could go 10 to 12 inches of a trace on a PCB and still have enough margin because you have to have margin on the switch side, but also margin on the next side because there'll be a cable in between yeah. for the full length to be functional with the right spec. 50 gig starts to make that tighter and more complex. And when 100 gig series come around, that distance gets shortened even more. But the other thing that's going on is that these chips are going from 6.4 terabit to 12.8 terabit to 25T. And you saw some announcements from Broadcom, especially on the 51T chips very recently. All of these new chips, while they provide a lot more throughput, they consume more power as well. Right. Power and cost per gigabit continues to go down. But the absolute power of the chip is going up. And it was one thing when you had a 100, 120 watt chip in on a switch, which was true in the 10 gig and 40 gig days. Today, you're talking about 500, 600, 700 to 900 watt chips in a system. And cooling them and designing a system that works under extreme conditions and failure scenarios of air conditioning and so on is not that straightforward. So I think the hardware designs and system designs are getting more complex. Yep. Also, the backwards compatibility choices of breaking out and being backwards compatible to 4 by 25 or a 10 gig lane on one side and mm -hmm. so on is extremely important. And that brings its own nuances. You know, this is for the very technical audience that you have that all these 30s come in blocks of 4 or 8 or 16 yep. lanes. lanes. But if you want to have four of these lanes operate at a lower speed, Turns out you might have to run all 16 at that same lower speed, or you might have to reset and then all 16 get a link flap. So these are types of operational issues that you have to solve for to make your system far more resilient. And then how can you upgrade without any downtime, things like that. So all of that is getting more complex, but Vista, I think we are fairly good at that. Right. I do want to circle back into not only 800 gig, but also the 1.6 T, you know, and then silicon, silicon photonics a little bit later into the conversation. But I think we, as you mentioned, I do want to transition over to the enterprise data center and some of the things that you're dealing with at the enterprise data center, because to be fair, I, I don't know many enterprise data centers that are running 400 gig type of rack switches, right? And I'm trying to have a better understanding on your success on the enterprise data center number one and where you think it's going to go. Because it's, it's roughly 35% of your business. A third of your business is coming from, from the enterprise data center, enterprise side. So you're finding a fair amount of traction there. We've done well in the enterprise last several years, and we continue to do well and grow in the enterprise. The enterprise's data centers, especially the larger ones, have very similar needs to the cloud, but just at a smaller scale. And one key aspect of our offering to the enterprise customers is building these networks that are scalable, that are near lossless. Many of our financial and enterprise customers use our deeper buffered switches for use cases like storage and so on, where otherwise they had to rely on discrete SAN networks and fiber channel and whatnot. We just consolidate all of it on a single IP leaf spine design. 
and, and we call it a unified cloud network for these enterprises. That's done very well. But a bigger aspect is automation. You know, when we were in the 2015 timeframe, we talked to many of our cloud customers and enterprise customers, and the cloud customers were already boasting for having one network engineer for every 10,000 switches. Mm-hmm. Our most efficient enterprise customers at that time were roughly having one network engineer for every 100 switches. Right. And that model is broken. Networking needs to be a lot more efficient, not just in how the products are bought and deployed, but how do you run your network? And why is it that the cloud companies can push out a change control within two days, whereas an enterprise company needs nine months to schedule change control and get it approved by the security teams and test it and whatnot. So we worked on Cloud Vision. Cloud Vision is our automation suite that takes every aspect of network operations and gives a cloud-like automation model to the enterprise customers. You don't need too many people to run this and you get upgrades that are very easy. You can track what is mismatched within your company's configuration database versus what's deployed in the network. We have customers who now use Cloud Vision compliance dashboard to show to the internal audit team on how clean their setup is. We have customers who can deploy brand new buildings and data centers with a complex VXLAN EVPN design within a few hours by using Cloud Vision. So there's a lot of advantages that you get. That there are things like network rollback, where if you do make a mistake, you can go back to how things were last Friday by simply hitting one button and you're yep. done. Right? These things were almost impossible in the past for the customers. So there's a lot of improvements we brought to the table there. Cloud Vision not only runs on-prem, it also now runs in the cloud as a service. And that, for a larger enterprise, is a problem that most companies don't easily think of. What happens is network automation, network management is not easy. But how do you manage your network automation infrastructure itself? Right. You're a large company with 30 sites. That That's something that needs to be managed as well. With the cloud service, we take care of all of that. Cloud vision, upgrades and bug fixes and keeping track of your config databases, syncing up with the Orista bugs every night, telling a customer what bugs they could be exposed to is all done pretty much as a service for the customer. So there's a lot of innovation and enhancements there. But then you have other aspects of the enterprise. You know, You have the security teams that make ask of the networking team in enterprise. And we took our dance monitoring fabric and made that a standard building block within our cloud designs for the enterprise. Now you get all of DMF essentially easily plugged into your data center design and you can monitor all your traffic. There's an analytics node, there's a package recorder. So security and compliance teams get a lot of work there as well. And the same approach is working very well with our Awake NDR solution. Yeah. You want to look at go threat hunting within your infrastructure using network data, it all plugs directly into the awake side as well. So it's a very complete solution for the enterprise. And I think that also allows us to do better. So let's explore this a little bit more, right? Because I understand the cloud vision and the network automation piece, right? I understand why the cloud guys can deploy this rel- relatively easily because they have an army of developers. But, but if I'm thinking about even a large scale enterprise where there's resource stretched, you need a new type of network engineer who knows how to program into this. Is the enterprise ready for something like a cloud vision for, for are there enough developers who understand network automation? And, and could that be a holdback on a faster ramp up or adoption 
So not only for Arista's cloud vision, but also similar things like a, an ACI, let's just say, right? Or what uh, Juniper is, is, is doing with, with their cloud automation suite so, or, or their network automation suite. I think it starts, first of all, from your operating system mm -hmm. that's running on the switches. How easy is it to extract and monitor state or program these switches? And if the architecture is clean, then it, it's essentially the same way our cloud customers talk to us, which is they extract data from our SysDB with standard APIs. Guess mm -hmm. what? Cloud Vision talks to our switches to get data from SysDB. Got it. So what we are offering to our enterprise customers and the way we build Cloud Vision is exactly how it's used at scale by cloud or the do-it-yourself customers. Other architectures in the industry are, there's a lot of marketing but the architecture is just not scalable. It's a hodgepodge trying to keep up with these customer features and asks and so on. We have, as uh, Jeshree has mentioned on, on one of the earnings calls, we have over a thousand Cloud Vision customers already. Not a new product or, or in its infancy. It's deployed at scale very widely by some of our largest uh, enterprise customers and doing very well. These customers have tried lots of other automation tools, and you are correct that everything else that they tried to do required a different skill set, right? And many networking groups don't have software developers on stuff. But when you look at Cloud Vision, you're not required to learn programming, but you are required to know how a network operates. And that's all it takes. The rest is all simplified and abstracted for the customer. We take care of the complexity. And I think it's a win-win for both parties. So we're talking about the first two years. Let's, let's talk about the next years five to seven from now. Right. And I want to switch to, I don't want to use the word metaverse, but let's just say this omniverse concept, this ultraverse concept that a lot of companies have been talking about. Thankfully, the hype cycle in my mind has started to diminish, but I still think it, the interest is, is high. I just want to understand from your standpoint, what are some of the core or key networking tenants to support the metaverse or the omniverse? You know, this infrastructure and then the use cases of that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. The infrastructure with GPUs, compute, networking can provide a lot of value. And then the applications and customers can use it in different ways. So I think the metaverse is real and can grow significantly. The concept of AI ML has been around for a very long time. I, I listened to a talk several years ago there's a professor at MIT who mentioned that AI has been talked about since 1970. Right. And even at that time, people thought just in a few years, AI will change the world. So the need and the concept has been there. But I think technology has advanced enough now where you're at a point where you're seeing real benefits fairly quickly. And, and if you go to healthcare examples where a machine learning algorithm can screen for cancer from an MRI or an ultrasound far better than a human. That's extremely important. And there's been a lot of investment in that space, but I think now we're getting the fruits of that labor. Similarly, when you look at a place like a cloud company or these companies trying to build the metaverse, they need to build massive infrastructure to enable all of this. Right. And then the application teams and the businesses can take over and drive it in different directions. We're not here to talk about how businesses will evolve whether you want to buy virtual currency or your avatar and reserve that for the future, I'll leave that to you. That's a different conversation. Yes. 
maybe my son would like to have the discussion with you. But um, when it comes to infrastructure, what is unique about these build-outs is, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, between compute, storage, and networking, there's always one of them that was a bottleneck. And you went back and forth and so on. And then these were sort of three different industries that evolved into the stack. With AI clusters, you need to do a lot more to move everything faster. And each one are so dependent on each other that without this stack progressing in synchrony, you just can't make it happen. So in the future world, the AI teams are talking a lot more to us about speeds. We talked about 100 gig 30s, which are coming soon. And you saw the announcement of the 51T chips, which will largely use these 100 gig 30s in a few years. But the AI teams are deeply interested in 224 gig 30s, the 200 gig era, 200 gig per lane era. And they want the world to go there faster because they have a need. The way these AI clusters work, if I can simplify, you essentially go through many stages of processing data and then exchanging results. Uh, you do this sometimes 200, 300, 500,000 times to get to a fully trained model or extracting all the signals you need to from a data set. And if the network can go faster, then you'll reach your conclusion faster, which means right. you'll lose, you need fewer GPUs, you'll use less power, and your business outcome can be reached faster as well. So today's network is running at 400 gig. Right. If in a hypothetical world, 800 gig was freely available, the AI clusters can use it today. On the same note, if 1.60 was available, they'll, they'll just consume it today because they need unlimited bandwidth. So it's a very unique use case where you're not trying to improve performance by 10, 20%. That group needs to double and double as quickly as possible until right. they come back and say, okay, we now have enough, but that is not anytime soon. So clearly the technology still has to catch up, right? Just a moment ago, we we're talking about 25 gig 30s, right? And 50 is starting to ramp up. But now you just mentioned 200 gig 30s. This is what some of the, the customers want. Right. It almost seems as if we're still several years away on the 30 side, the line card 30 side, because I see a line of sight to 1.6 T switches, but I don't see a line of sight for 200 gig 30s, not just yet. It almost seems as if we're still five years away to build at least the underlay of this metaverse, omniverse infrastructure. I think the underlay is starting to get built with whatever technology exists today. Let's say right. 400 for now. But you are correct that these new speeds will take time, mm -hmm. a rough order of magnitude. And then it's plus minus, depending on the exact product, are you making a single chip versus multi-chip? Is it a small top of rack pizza box style design versus a big modular chassis? So things change quite a bit. But as a rough order of magnitude, each new generation takes about three years. Right. And we're in the 50 gig generation, we'll get to the 100 gig 30s. That takes time to be developed and deployed, and then we'll get to 200 gigs. So I think it's coming in the future. The good news is, you know, in the 2016, 2017 timeframe, optics was a very big constraint. And it turned out that in 2016, switches were ready, but the 100 gig, these are 4 by 25 gig NRZ optics were not ready. And our customers were stuck. They had deployments waiting to happen and so on. They just didn't get enough optics. Now, I think the industry is progressing well, where the optics will not be the issue. In fact, the optics, to some extent, might be even ahead of, of switches because the optical side is already running at 100 gig per lambda. Now, 200 gig per lambda is harder. 
and may require right. a lot more R&D and work, but I know many companies are working on that as well. Great. I want to wrap things up with some of the M&A that, that you've done. Well, one, philosophical, right? Because I've been covering networking for quite some time now. Software-defined networking and a software-only approach we thought was going to be the death of hardware. Right. I mean, I've seen articles that, that companies like Big Switch was going to eventually kill someone like a Cisco. Right. That necessarily didn't happen. What, why, philosophically, why didn't the software only approach for some of these startups never work out? Right. You acquired Big Switch, you acquired Pluribus, which also made an operating system, and, and Cumulus was acquired by somebody else. Just philosophically, why didn't these software guys didn't work? And why is it a joint hardware, software? type of project seems to be more successful here. Yeah. We're quite happy with Switch and Pluribus at risk, but the, the broader question, it's something we've looked at since the start of the company. So very little known secret. When Arista first started, this is even before I had joined, Andy and Ken had gone visited a few cloud customers. And guess what? Our first offering ever was a software only that could run on someone else's hardware, the customer's hardware. But this was before its time, and there was no interest from these customers at that time. I see. Before the world knew about white boxes. So Andy and Ken and team quickly pivoted and said, you know, we have to build systems and so on. By that time, I joined as well. Jesse was here, and we started ramping the business. Now, if you look at these software-only companies and their business model, that just does not converge, meaning I don't see how they can be profitable ever. The reason being, when you sell switches or routers or networking stack, you're selling hardware and you're selling software, and you look at the margin on the entire blended sale. Software cogs are generally considered to be zero. Yes, you have R&D, so you need to be profitable in the end as a company. But when you're doing a quick sale, you look at, can you break even or make money? When you disaggregate and you have white box companies selling their hardware, the software companies selling their own software, the white box companies want to make margin on their hardware. And as they do that, some want to make 30% margin, some want to make 50, 60% margin. And then you have the software company trying to sell software and make margin themselves as well. That entire stack is actually more expensive than buying it from a systems company like us. There are other companies in our competition as well that we have, and it becomes a pricing war then as a systems company, you can compete on prices or decide to walk away if it's too low. But when you're a software-only company, you're the mercy of the white box company. And what if the white box company says, that's not my problem. I'm not going to drop prices. I want my margin. Right. And compete. So when you look at whether it's Cumulus or Big Switch or Pluribus or others, if the goal was to take over the entire networking space, and let's say Cisco and Arista won't exist because the software-only companies have taken over, they actually don't converge. Maybe they do if they had 50, 60, 70% global market share. Right. That business model is impossible. You know, this is an industry where getting 1% market share is extremely hard. No one will let you get 50% market share right. only for you to then take them over, right? So uh, I think these are all theoretical models. We have been surprised on how much funding has been given to such companies with a business plan that doesn't show break-even. Now, having said that, I think both Big Switch and Pluribus pivoted. They knew exactly what was going on. Big Switch pivoted to network monitoring and observability. Pluribus moved on to Telco Cloud Fabric. We call it UCF or Unified Converged Fabric. 
And in those types of business models, these companies have done well. And in fact, we managed to integrate them into risk and grow that business as well. Hopefully that, that addresses the question on this myth. I think it's related to your earlier question about white boxes as well. And this is more in the context of white boxes outside of the cloud. Right. That's the financial reality of these business models. So let's pivot to the Pluribus deal then, right? And and then at first blush, I really didn't think much of a Pluribus deal. And I still don't think investors appreciate the Pluribus deal right now. You know, we thought of it as more of a, another acqui hire, right? And they just ran out of time. But they were doing some really interesting things up until the last few months. And I asked a question to you on the call, one of the earnings call about a year ago about DPUs. And, and it seems as if they're addressing something on the DPUs and edge computing and edge networks. And you wrote an extensive blog about that. Could, can you just talk about that a little bit? And where does networking go with the rise of the DPU and what NVIDIA is doing and what Marvell is doing in terms of what they want to do with this emerging market? So first of all, I think the Pluribus team has a great set of engineers, a very cohesive team. And when we look at acquisitions, cultural match is very important to us. Because if culturally you're not aligned, then no matter how great your strategy is, you just won't be able to execute. So I think we've done well on the cultural side with these companies. When you look at the work Pluribus has been doing, first in the telco cloud space with customers like Eric, it's a very good solution because, you know, we talked about the cloud and the enterprise and the service providers need fully automated solutions as well. They rely on system integrators like Ericsson to provide that to them. But Ericsson also needs these building blocks. And, and I think Pluribus has done well to take a building block and sort of customize the product set to what these telcos need. And it's a fully automated fabric. You press a button and it's ready to go. It's a single click type of solution with lots of features underneath and complexity is hidden. In addition to that, the same team has been working on DPUs. And you saw part of the announcement we referred some of the work we've been doing with NVIDIA, but this applies to all the other DPUs as well. I think what's happening with the DPU world is you're able to take networking functions that earlier couldn't scale in hardware. Right. There was this whole thought about x86 and you have the DPDK world trying to do offloads and acceleration in, on servers. That only gets you so much. But what if you're looking at millions of flows at very high throughput? That's what the DPUs are able to offer. You can terminate TCP sessions, you can do natting, you can do segmentation, you can on-ramp tenants from the edge, as you mentioned, into a cloud space. There's a lot of applications and use cases that I think will continue to evolve here as well. I think it was important for us to start entering this area, not as a hardware company, but as a software company in that space by adding our value features and so on that we can and integrate it into the rest of the network that we build for our customers. I mean, I view it as more of an extension of a potential extension of EOS, right? And the cloud vision. That's absolutely correct. It is a way of extending into these other peripheral nodes where if you can communicate and signal, you know, the world of networking does a lot with VRFs, but there's a lot more you can do once you start going segmentation, you look, start looking at containers and how microservices are offered in the world today. I think networking needs to extend to that as well. Perfect. Well, well, Cheryl, thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for sharing the risk of vision and the future of networking. That's the wrap for today's episode. Like Ansho, we have a great lineup of guests in the coming week. 
Please. So click subscribe to keep up to date with the new episodes of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors as they come out. Thank you again.